The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Leah Douglas. She is a staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, better known as FERN. This is an independent, nonprofit newsroom that publishes investigative and explanatory reporting on food, agriculture, and environmental health. Ms. Douglas's reporting on corporate power and big business in the food and agriculture sectors has been widely published in The Guardian, The Nation, The Washington Post, Mother Jones, NPR, Time, Fortune, and many more. Ms. Douglas was the 2020 recipient of the National Farmers Union Milt Haeckel Award for Excellence in Agricultural Reporting, and she is a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the New Economies Reporting Project Finance Solutions Fellowship. Since April of 2020, Ms. Douglas has led the national coverage of the spread of COVID-19 at meatpacking plants, food processing facilities, and on farms. And I'll be providing a link to that work in our program notes. Welcome, Leah. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to bring your voice and work to our listeners because I've been following your writing for several years. And I think that the work that you did on COVID-19 in meatpacking plants actually lends well to a very recent report that you did on racism in Future Farmers of America. I believe that's now just called FFA. And I think that these issues are related because many of the sponsors of FFA actually support this industrial model of agriculture, which is feeding the fires of COVID-19 in the industrial farming network across our country. So I'm thrilled to have you here to dive into both of those issues. First, though, let me just ask you, how did you become interested in food and agriculture? Oh, I started my journey to the work that I do now, maybe when I was 18, 17 or 18. I became really fascinated with cooking and um, thought I might become a chef or a baker for a long time when I was a teenager. And when I went to college, I sort of morphed that interest into studying agriculture and food systems and uh, just sort of captured my attention and interest. And I've just been writing about it and studying it ever since. So do you have a degree in journalism? I do not. My undergrad degree was in sustainable agriculture and food systems. Well, I have to say you're an excellent reporter. You're an excellent writer. And anybody who takes a look at some of your stories will see that as well. It's quite evident. So thank you. The work that you bring to your readers is critically important in understanding how everything is connected. I want to start with the COVID-19 story in meatpacking plants because I live in the Midwest and we see on the map that you provided these huge pockets of outbreaks in the Midwest, largely related to meatpacking and food processing facilities. Tell me what led you to want to investigate this topic. Absolutely. So when the pandemic began in March, we at Fern, you know, just like every other newsroom in the country, immediately began covering as quickly as we could, you know, what are the impacts of this in our 
beat. And in our case, that's food and agriculture. And so we were covering all different topics related to that food security. At the time, folks were really concerned about a food shortage. And one of those topics that was quickly emerging was the spread of the virus at meatpacking facilities and resulting closures. And in March and April, we saw you know, almost two dozen meatpacking plants closed down for a substantial amount of time at some point. And there were sort of a flood of these reports coming in of COVID spreading and these new outbreaks. But in the course of my reporting, I couldn't find the database that was aggregating that information to really know, okay, what's the context for these new outbreaks and how many cases are there overall? So I began compiling that information myself in April and published the first version of this map on April 22nd. At the time, there was about 40 outbreaks mapped on that version. And it was just at the beginning of this phenomenon and had no idea, of course, that almost six months later, there are almost 900 outbreaks now in the database and approaching 60,000 cases among food system workers all over the country, I believe in 45 states. Yeah, this is just remarkable. And I think when looking at your maps, first of all, you've done a great job in visualizing numbers. And I think this is part of the hardship that we face. You know, we hear about tens of thousands But unless you are looking at a map visually and you see these big bubbles and then you've got pie-shaped wedges to show where the cases are, you realize, wow, this is a significant problem. But in the number story, even in my own community and state, we have discrepancies in numbers. And you did a video, I think it was a Facebook Live session, where you talked about some of the hardships in collecting the data. As you mentioned, there isn't a central collecting point. You'd think the CDC would be doing that for the country. But tell me how you've navigated getting the data, getting the numbers. Sure. So that's definitely been the biggest hurdle in this project is accessing accurate data and standardizing the data to the point that it can be used reliably in this database. And early on in the pandemic, most of the information was coming from news reports. So it's just sort of drinking from a fire hose. Local news all over the country was covering outbreaks in their community. And COVID was so novel at the time, it really captured the public attention. And over time, you know, as obviously we're dealing with so many crises in the country right now, and every news organization is strapped. So some of that attention has needed to focus elsewhere. And there's been other data sources arising to to try to to use as well. So I still rely on local news reports, but I also, there's a few states that are providing information on a regular basis about outbreaks that I've been able to tap into. At the same time, I've reported extensively on how both the public and the private sector have created a number of obstacles to getting reliable data about COVID-19 spread at, at food facilities. And the private sector, there's really not a common practice among any employer to report COVID-19 outbreaks in cases. There was a small window when Tyson Foods was testing its workers, but that initiative has now ended. And since then, the the companies, especially meat packers, have really resisted giving any information about how many of their workers are sick or have died of COVID. And in the public sector, unfortunately, there's also a lot of reticence to share data. I did a survey of all 50 states to see who would give me information on requests about cases and outbreaks. And I found just four states were willing to share really comprehensive data on how food system workers were affected by COVID. So there's a combination of the data isn't being collected. And it's hard to know exactly where and how it's not being collected because, again, it's absent. And the data that is there, entities are very unwilling to share it. So I always share the caveat with these numbers that as striking as they are, and this is the best tally that we have, 
it's absolutely an undercount just given how many flaws there are in the the data set available. Mm, Absolutely. And even with the numbers that you have, I think it's quite remarkable. You've also gone so far as to show which of the industries are leading in illness. And so Tyson rises to the top. They are certainly, if these numbers are indeed reflecting the true numbers, Tyson Food has the most cases and the most deaths. Tell me why you think that is. Why is Tyson worse than, say, JBS or Smithfield? Well, that's a great question. And certainly Tyson has received a lot of scrutiny and criticism from worker advocates and food system advocates, labor for the entire pandemic for the way that its workers have become sick at such a disproportionate rate. It's worth noting Tyson is the largest meatpacker in the country, so it has the highest number of workers, the largest workforce. At the same time, according to my numbers, about approaching 10% of Tyson workers have contracted COVID, whereas for JBS and Smithfield, it's number two and three meat packers, that's around four or five percent. So that percentage comparison helps us to see that more Tyson workers are, are actually have been confirmed to have contracted COVID. And again, I mentioned there was a period of time when Tyson was disclosing cases at and outbreaks at some of its facilities that definitely spiked their numbers and JBS and Smithfield have not had a comparable practice of transparency even for a short time. But there are certainly reports from Tyson facilities that workers had really sporadic and inconsistent access to protective equipment at the beginning of the pandemic and even ongoing, and that the company was not responsive to those demands. Similar allegations have been brought against the other meat packers as well. So that's some of the reasons why we're seeing those huge numbers from Tyson. Right. Yeah, it's so tragic. And then there was a story that was reported by Fern this morning that came in my inbox about a worker who died. This was at a on a farm, farm processing in Texas, where he had become ill, the worker ended up dying, unfortunately, but there was no support from the industry, no medication, no doctor's visits. Is that a fairly ubiquitous practice where the workers are left on their own, they don't have access to health care if they do become ill? Well, it's absolutely always needs to be mentioned that food system workers are a vulnerable workforce by and large. So it's predominantly people of color, many immigrants, according to some estimates in the meatpacking sector, as much as 50% of the workforce are immigrants, some undocumented, especially in the farm sector. We know that there are many, many undocumented farm workers in the U.S. So all of those different identities and levels of exposure to risk do present burdens for the workers in terms of getting adequate care, in terms of having access to paid time off, and so on. So I think part of the reason why it feels it's such a mandate to me to do this work is we know that this is a workforce that is not consistently unionized. These are very low-paying jobs, uh, very high-risk and dangerous jobs, you know, even without the added risk of COVID. And workers who would face real difficulty if they decided not to go back to work because of the risk of COVID, which many have. And that when I've seen many uh, discussions of workers having to make that choice of, do I protect my safety and health and the health of my family, or do I make money? And that's an impossible choice, obviously. So absolutely, many of the workers across all of these sectors are extremely vulnerable. Mm, yeah. And also fearful of going to get medical care oftentimes because they're fearful of being deported. So it's just a horrible situation from all angles that we look at it. So Tyson Foods, if memory serves me correctly, has also been 
an employer of prison labor. Do you know if that is still going on? Because there's also, of course, the large outbreaks that we see in prisons. You know, I'm not too familiar with the current state of that. I know that prison work crews or crews of incarcerated people are common across the country. And I know that some states had stopped the use of those work crews at the beginning of the pandemic because of these dual risks, the risk in the prison and the risk at the farm or the plant. But I'm not sure specifically Tyson's implication in that. Sure. Well, we'll have to do some more digging on that. Everything is connected at the end of the day. Well, I wonder, is there anything else that you want to bring forth from your continuing documentation of this before we move into other subject matter? Well, you know, I always encourage folks to keep this issue front of mind. I know that the first several months of the pandemic, the issues around food system and COVID really captured national attention. And of course, now there are many other issues capturing national attention, and it's a very difficult time to keep everything in your head at once. But I really encourage folks to seek out this information. Cases are still rising in these sectors. And if anything, the lack of spotlight or the diminishing spotlight makes it less likely that there'll be substantial changes to how the sector is regulated and the experience that workers are having. So especially moving into the fall and winter, when we're anticipating some new spikes, I just encourage folks to really keep this issue front of mind. Good. And how often are you updating these maps? I update them every weekday around 12 p.m. Eastern. Oh, my goodness. Okay. This is great current data. Well, we're about halfway through. So let me just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Leah Douglas. She is a staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, also known as FERN. She has done some remarkable reporting over the years on issues that affect us on and beyond our plate. I wanted to talk about COVID-19 because that is absolutely an issue that is in the spotlight today, as well as racism. And ironically, you published a report on September 8th of 2020 about the nation's largest student farm organization, FFA, And there was a racist incident involving a leader of the 700,000-member organization, which has spurred a backlash and revealed actually a long history of inequity. Tell me, how did you first decide to investigate the story and dig deeper into FFA? Sure. So the incident that the story revolves around happened in June, and Shortly after it occurred, a colleague sent me a message and said, you know, hey, just FYI, there's this whole discussion going on in the FFA community around racism and around this incident. And I'm not an FFA alum myself and was only sort of tangentially familiar with the organization through my work. But as I started digging, it became clear that this one incident had actually given way to a, a really deep, really crucial conversation that the FFA community was having around its own racial disparities, racist encounters that Black members had had with white members, and the history of the organization as well. So once I was sort of piqued, my interest was directed at it, it became a really rich story. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm interested in FFA because I'm interested in the narratives that we tell about farming. And back in 2014, I had received a, like you, a tip from someone who said, hey, you got to check out the keynote speech at the FFA National Convention. And that particular convention, their keynote speaker was Donnie Smith Tyson. And ironically, Tyson Foods is actually a big donor of the FFA. And here we see Tyson Foods not being a good player 
when it comes to COVID-19 and worker protections, and then you see them giving a keynote speech at the largest student farming organization in the country. So that piqued my interest, how the students and what the students are learning through this organization. And then your story piqued my interest because of one individual, Xavier Morgan, who enrolled in FFA in his Chicago high school for agricultural sciences. And he felt very much welcomed by the organization. And then as the Black Lives Matter campaign or movement got fired up, there started to be some negative messages in social media. And immediately he felt like this isn't the support he thought he was getting. So tell me about Xavier's story. Sure. So, and just for context for folks, you know, I know many folks are familiar with FFA, but this is, a, as you said, the largest student farm organization in the country, $31 million organization with 700,000 members in every state and a very influential organization in farming communities that has long been linked with cultivating the next generation of farmers, which especially now, as we know, the current farmer age is rising and many farmers are aging out. You know, this is a very active discussion. How do we keep young farmers coming into this profession. So the FFA is is an important institution and in many people's lives. And so when I first encountered Xavier, I had learned about this incident that occurred in June where a former FFA leader had posted on her Instagram, a white woman posted on her Instagram about why all of her followers should support Black Lives Matter. And this was shortly after the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. And of course, you know, discourse around police violence and racism was really capturing our national attention. And this video went viral and caused a lot of conversation. And one of the people who commented on it was a current national officer, which is FFA's highest leadership role for students. He left a derogatory comment saying, if it's so bad and primitive here, then go to another country to paraphrase. And that comment from such a prominent leader really set off a lot of backlash. And uh, Xavier and some other FFA alumni started thinking, you know, what could be done about this? Can we raise this to FFA's professional leadership? But then the next day after that uh, initial remark was made, another FFA member discovered very like racist, xenophobic and homophobic memes on this national officer's Facebook from several years ago, from 2013 to 2019. And so so this was even more disturbing to this group of alumni, and they called for this leader's removal, and he was removed, and chose to take that moment of a lot of attention on racism in FFA to push for the organization to really make good on a lot of its promises around racial diversity that really have failed for the last many decades. And so that, again, as I said, gave way to this really wide-spanning conversation about many Black members sharing experiences of racism that they'd had and how the organization has really failed to diversify despite many attempts to do so. Mm -hmm. It's also not diversified in terms of their sponsors. It's not diversified in terms of what kind of messaging students receive at the conventions. And I think that's disturbing, especially because of what COVID-19 has revealed about our food system, that the industrial model isn't working. It's leaving many of us at risk. And ironically, when we talk about getting food access, we've seen that the smaller sized farms, those farms that have CSAs or community supported agriculture, they haven't been able to keep up with the increased demand. So I'm hoping that we're going to see a shift in how we produce our food. 
But the FFA is clearly representative of the industrial model. And I think that the faces of FFA mirror what we've seen in terms of racism, even within USDA. So it's not this big surprise that we see this. Well, sure. Of course, you know, FFA has always been linked with agribusiness. Something like 80% of FFA go on to work in agribusiness, including Xavier, the primary character in my story, who works at Hormel Foods, which is a meat packer. And many more of the students have aspirations to those type of careers. And I should say, everyone I spoke with for the interviews for this story was sure to tell me that they had a really positive experience with their FFA chapter. Lifelong friendships, real leadership development, you know, they're all so insightful and able to really speak about how they feel and think very clearly. So they clearly had walked away with major value add from their experience in FFA. And it was these broader trends and broader concerns that they pointed me to that they would go from their very supportive local chapter and to a national convention and be encountering types of bigotry or discrimination that didn't feel like they upheld FFA's values to these students. So I think that's really underscoring the cultural divide is not everyone at FFA is culturally homogenous, politically homogenous, has the same opinions about how the organization should work. But for its 100-year history, it has overwhelmingly represented the interests of white students who have a specific outlook. And it's been very conservative in terms of its approach to gender politics and to racial politics, as we discussed, and, and also just engaging in capital P politics. Mm-hmm. In preparation for this interview, I went online and I was looking at the FFA 93rd National Convention, which is going to be virtual this year. It's held in October of 2020. And all of the individuals who were speaking to promote this conference were white. So despite the fact that this is so recent, that there's been a tension to lack of diversity within the organization, you would think that there would be at least one person of color in the promotion for the conference. That's a great point. And I should say, as of the publication of the story in September, which, of course, this incident, this whole series of dominoes that fell around the discussion of race at FFA began in June. So it's several months after that incident that the story was published. The alumni who are organizing around pushing the organization forward on race said that they had a long list of demands that the organization engaged with and it has not yet except for maybe one issue really engaged with that list of demands. So there is definitely a ways to go. Yeah. Well, it is clear to me that FFA members do learn good leadership, as you mentioned, and I think they also learn incredible communication skills. So the young people who get up on the stage really are very well prepared to communicate this industrial narrative, which is overwhelmingly the message that they are receiving. Part of your story that I felt really needed to be raised here was that some people in FFA chapters around the country have been confronted with Confederate flags a visit to Missouri where a white student told a member that she wouldn't listen to her presentation because she was black. I wish that there was as much emphasis on unifying farmers, bringing together people of all colors to truly feed the world. That's one of their big messages, rather than allowing this kind of racism to continue. Do you have any messages for people who want to have an influence in this organization how do we get through? Well, I think that in terms of what was shared with me from the FFA alumni who had those experiences, their real mission in doing this work is to try to make agriculture, agribusiness, 
rural issues, uh, these different areas of work and focus, places where people of all backgrounds can really be heard and have their needs addressed. That was the driving concern when I asked folks, you know, why, you know, you're an alumni, you could walk away, like, why are you still pushing this organization? And they felt a strong sense of obligation and responsibility to make agriculture and the field that they work in a racially diverse and accepting place for all identities and backgrounds. And I was really moved by that. I think that there's a lot of that hasn't been necessarily the direction that FFA or the broader agricultural sector has been moving. We know that over the last hundred years, we've lost a huge percentage of our Black farmers in the country. And it still remains a very difficult sector to break into for people of all marginalized backgrounds. So that was the driving charge for these students was to try to change that with their efforts. Mm -hmm. How can we help them? Well, I would say that folks should read this story, like familiarize yourself with these issues. Of course, many folks listening will be familiar with FFA chapters in your community. I know that when I published this story, I received a huge amount of feedback from folks of all racial backgrounds who said, this is so resonant with what I've experienced in my community. You know, the FFA didn't really make space for a diverse set of opinions and there were Confederate flags. There were other and negative experiences that folks had. So it appears that this is a, a common experience. And so folks who do have FFA in their community, I'd encourage them to look around and, and try to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I would also encourage people to visit the FFA website and look at funding sources. I think that when you see million-dollar sponsors who are part of the industrial system, Corteva, Bayer, who bought Monsanto, I don't think these students are going to be learning about the kinds of agriculture, the indigenous wisdom, for example, that comes with different forms of agriculture that we really need right now in the face of these horrific climate events. You know, the purpose of my story was to really draw out the issues around racism that FFA is having. You know, I'll say again that a lot of folks that I spoke with had a really positive experience and are going on to work in the sector or to be agricultural educators and are trying to figure out how to bridge in multiple types of agricultural practices in their community. So I think it's a really nuanced issue, and, and I do hope that folks will check it out. Well, Leah, I am going to make sure that we have links to this story as well as your map in our program notes. I want to make sure that I give you a minute just to leave our listeners with any last points that you'd like to make. Thanks. I would just say again, I hope folks will keep food and ag issues top of mind this fall and winter, especially around COVID. And uh, you can check out all of Fern's reporting. We have ongoing coverage of the pandemic around food insecurity. We're always covering what's going on on the Hill related to food and ag and my reporting on the pandemic and other issues. So you can check us out at thefern.org. And yeah, I hope everyone will stay looped in. Absolutely. And I do want to let people know that there are stories about antibiotic resistance on the Fern site as well, which is very important in linking health to all of this. Fern is supported by public donation. Is that correct? Yep. We're a nonprofit and it's a combination of reader supported and nonprofit funder supported as well. Good. So if you go online and you read stories that you like and you think that this reporting is something that you want to see more of and have more support, then by all means, please make a donation to Fern to help continue that work. Well, we've got to close. I want to thank you so much for your time. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced 
by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Leah Douglas, staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network. This is an independent, nonprofit newsroom that publishes investigative and explanatory reporting on food, agriculture, and environmental health that you really won't find anywhere else. So thank you so much, Leah, for all of your time and hard work. Thank you. I really appreciate it. 